Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. It seems so strange to be talking about uh, augmented reality and narratives and uh, conspiracy given this moment in time where we actually, I feel like we've actually stepped into an alternate timeline where uh, someone's got a bit wild with the script. Yes, it's, it has a, a whiff of the uncanny about it. Uh, <laughs> the, the fact that our cognitive and informational universe took on this weird doubleness and ambiguity at the same time that we learned how to counterfeit the senses so effectively. I don't know if we're allowed to call it a coincidence. I think it's above my pay grade. It's been a point of discussion for some time, people wondering whether we live in a simulation. And I guess the, the, the next question which people are always frightened to ask is what happens when the creators of the simulation get bored with season one? Uh, what, does it look like when, <laughs> what does it look like when they start to jump the shark? And I, and I think we're discovering that now. Yes. You know, I, I think that the whole debate about whether we live in a, civilization, in a simulation is, is driven by a, an unspoken wish that that's true. And if we can't have that, then we are working so hard to build our own simulation and make it true. Um, I don't know why that's, uh, why that's such an innate drive, but, um, but really, since, uh, since the 1970s, we've worked so hard on it. I mean, I lived through several revolutions of this, right? We had video games, and then we had real-time 3D, and then we had digitized audio and video. We've been working toward this for a long time, for 50 years at least. We're, we're going to get into that. Um, and that's because I'm joined today uh, by a fascinating guest. I'm with uh, Austin Grossman, who is an uh, author of three fantastic books, including one of my favorites, Crooked, uh, as well as a design consultant. He's the former director of uh, interactive design for Le uh, Magic Leap, the notorious AR company. Uh, Austin, it's great to uh, ha have you on the show today. Oh, it's really nice to be here. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, about the, you started to get into this already with the way we're kind of imagining virtual worlds, but now virtual reality, uh, augmented reality, has sort of been amalgamated into this broader term of XR or extended reality. Uh, can you talk a little bit about really what that is and, and, and I guess what it means now? Yes, let's well let's sort of ground this discussion in the sort of baseline definitions. Uh, for people just walking in. Virtual reality is the thing everybody uh, mostly knows. It's this, it's this illusory environment that entirely replaces the real world. And then we have augmented reality, which generally people understand as a kind of overlay, uh, like a head-up display to reality. It tags objects in the world. It knows which way you're facing. But people rightly or wrongly, have made an effort to distinguish it from the third thing, which we call mixed reality, which is a much more seamless intermingling of digital content and illusory content with the real world. It has three-dimensional illusory objects that rebound off physical objects of the real world. They make a sound as they do it. They disappear when they go behind them. So they're essentially they're, they're aware of the, the, their actual context. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Have you seen it? Yeah, and I think one of the, the fascinating concepts in it is this, this idea of occlusion, right, where you can actually hide behind something. So if you've got like a, a, a virtual dog, it, it'll actually 
recognize the objects in the in the viewfinder and, and and be able to interact or even hide behind them. Yes, that's the weird miracle where it where it it knows, but then it knows to pretend not to know. Uh, it's uh, anyway, and then they rolled it all together into XR because the fields uh, felt so related, and everyone got tired of saying it all. There seems to be some similarities um, with XR and AI, um, which we've been experimenting with, you know, for you know since the sixties and seventies. Uh, but it, but it sort of took a, a series of of events and technologies to hit a critical mass for it to really start to gain broader adoption. Yes, people I think don't immediately see. You're you're quite right, and people don't always immediately see how much AI there is in something like mixed reality. As you said, it requires the the machine to understand the context in which it is living, to recognize objects, to classify them. It really starts to become part of your life as it knows its way around your apartment. And it's also true on, on creepier subliminal levels. It's the whole business where to keep an object stationary in the in your point of view, the the computer has to kind of juggle it. You you move your head, and it should it's, it, sh- it should move with your head because it's on your glasses, but it stays still, which means the computer is figuring out where your head is moving and and sort of puppeting the the illusory illusory object to stay still. And it does that because it's so smart about how you're moving your head. And honestly, I move my head a lot as I right. talk. And it's completely unpredictable. And the fact that they have got it sort of rock solid means they really understand a lot about how I move my head. Uh, uh, so it's a very intimate kind of artificial intelligence. Yeah, and 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 then there's an there's an optical dimension to understanding the the observer, but there's also a psychological dimension as well. And 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 this is where the narrative side gets really interesting because it's not like writing a linear novel uh, or or a story. Um, as the observer's um, psychology and perspective changes, so does the story. So so as a as, as someone who creates a narrative in this environment, how does that change the way you think about it? Goodness. Okay, let's uh, let's uh, let's jump to that. Uh, so I came to Magic Leap in 2013 or so with what I felt was a fairly interesting, varied background in storytelling. Uh, I had uh, been working on interactive narrative in the 90s and aughts. These kind of long form immersive simulations uh, that uh, worked very hard to, well, do the kind of holy grail, which was to mingle a sense of agency and a sense of being in a narrative. And I had a lot of tricks at my disposal. <laughs> but really, when, I, when we uh, started using the mixed reality device and augmented reality, it was, it was the, we had to throw the whole bag of tricks out the window. And I'll explain why, if I can go on for a little bit. Um, of course. I think the biggest thing about telling stories in mixed reality that hits you is that you don't, it doesn't transport you. You're not looking at a flat screen and kind of losing your sense of the world and mentally projecting yourself in it. You're not in virtual reality where you're in a completely simulated environment. Uh, there's this odd business where you're in the same room. It's just been added. It's just had things added to it. And frankly, the moment I thought I had this, we all thought we had this super powerful technology. We, you know, we're going to take it to Mars. You can ride a dragon. Well, you know, that's what films do. And that's what virtual reality does. They do the, both of those things extremely well. 
when you put on that on the, the the magic leap device, it does miraculous things. But you're in the same room. You're in the same damn room, and you're in the same damn body you were. It doesn't take you away, which required some real real radical rethinking because you have to now reconceive the space you're in, wherever the person is, as the story space. Right. Uh, which is new and different, or as you can think of it, very, very old, because you're much more in the domain of theater or t- telling stories around a fire than you are in the world of the 20th century. Right, where which, you, don't, you don't have as many props to, to transform the perspective, but you have to use other cues in order to, I guess, let people fill in the dots themselves. Yes, and believe me, when I told, when I told management that they were making theater, <laughs> they got very, very depressed because they immediately saw all those winged dollars flying out the, the window. Uh, but you just have to think of it that way. And once you've gotten to think that way, it means you can do sort of new and powerful and interesting things. Because frankly, theater is a very old and powerful thing. And there's, there's a kind of make-believe that happens. I mean, the, the canonical example that we came up with first is you're in your apartment, hmm. uh, your own apartment. And you put on the glasses, and suddenly it becomes a haunted house. And the machine knows the contours of your apartment. It knows your appliances, and it starts making ghosts and eerie things appear. Uh, you know, you're, you're glimpsing faces in, in mirrors. Uh, you're seeing windows to places that shouldn't exist. Suddenly, the ordinary domestic space you've been in is now a space of story and mystery. Mm. And that's when we were finally grabbing for the thing. What you know? What we can't do this, can't do that. What what do we do well? That's the start of sort of thing we started to realize you do well. You know, you put the glasses on. Suddenly, a woman comes through a door you've never seen before and says, uh, "Well, we've got the test results back. You're a wizard." Like suddenly, <laughs> a story. You know, you've started a story, but it's a story where you're in your own body. It's, it's a story that's happening to you in your lace, right. which is really, really new. Uh, and I think, as I said, very, very interesting. And, you know, because it kind of transports, transforms your own uh, living space. It can make it a narrative space. It can make it a meditative space. You can have an adventure in your own room, which in these times of global pandemic is, is, is actually increasingly interesting. But I, but I guess you also have an opportunity to, to create a deeper level of psychological immersion because the, the boundaries between this as an imaginary experience and something that you're actually internalizing with your own your own reality starts to blur. I kind of think about, you remember um, uh, Neil Stevenson's Diamond Age? Um, oh, yes. Uh, where it, was, it always struck me as odd that it, it wasn't sort of a AI or it was actually actors playing out the, uh, on the other side of the, of the, of the device. But, yes. the, but the thing that was really fascinating was that they were tapping into her own personal archetypes that they were, they were responding to the stories and the context she was in. And, and that's what really made it so psychologically powerful for her as an experience. Yes, I, I should, Neil Stephen, who I should say, um, uh, I reported to at Magic Leap. He signed my expense checks. Uh, really? He, he, did you not know he worked at Magic Leap? No, I, 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 I knew he was, the, um, he was the first employee at, uh, at uh, Bezos's uh, space company, but I didn't know he was also at Magic Leap. Oh yes, they saw they they sought him out. He was uh, he was my uh, boss for the last two years. Um, he turns out to be a wonderful guy. Um, anyway, sorry not to not to get off the point. Yes, there's this. You, you're absolutely right that there's a psychological 
intimacy to this technology that may be maybe more more powerful than than we've we've been getting in other media because it is yes as you said it's so much about your context and about you and it's a very it's a very human and intimate technology uh you're talking about a device that you wear around and that that lives with you that um does ask you to be a little more like an actor and an improviser and right. you know I, I could really see that being i could i could see neil stevens idea of the diamond age sort of entertainment medium being a functional thing because you know honestly people are already uh doing versions of that in virtual reality because you know when you're using a laptop you're piloting a little thing around in a virtual space in the other side of the screen when you're wearing the, the headset you're a person walking around and the humanness of that frankly for i think for for a while is going to to bring that to its fulfillment is going to take a human on the other end of the equation although we we should talk more about ai uh i wanted to say one more thing on this on this question of the sort of intimacy of it one of the most striking things about the mixed reality medium is that if you're seeing an illusion of something and you care about it and you have some reaction to it Right, uh, you know, there's like you know an illusory kitten like uh, right. on your desk. You take the headset off, and there's a there's a quality to how memory works. There's that it attaches itself to places. Like the kitten's gone, but like your feeling about where the kitten was, it stays and it kind of stays associated with that place. Like a, like a um, like a like a loci. Yes, yes, ex- exactly, and that's that's why I was mentioning um, uh, the importance that it. It might give you a sense, a different sense of what your apartment is. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's not just the place where you eat breakfast, maybe the place where you had an adventure. It's, uh, we're just scratching the surface of what this kind of things is going to do, but I think it's going to stay around. I think it's going to be really, really powerful. Do you think this, this ultimately means we don't end up being surrounded by physical screens, um, that in a sense, screens start to look like very outdated technology and that we just essentially have glasses uh, or contact lenses ultimately that that project this world around us oh yes i mean that was that was one of our informal mottos at magic you know my three-word explanation of why it magically matters is no more screens right the whole idea that this digital world that we're immersed in that's pervasive that connects us and orients us the fact that we're sort of scrabbling at it through this tiny glass pane that we look at and i looked this up an average of 96 times per day. <laughs> the idea that we could just banish screens and that all that stuff that was trapped behind the glass is simply factually in the world with us so that we're no longer separated from that whole dimension of our of our lives and which I think could be a very positive thing because you're sort of then you're sort of ambiently connected to it rather than sort of glancing at it the whole crouched over look at the screen uh can just can just go away. How far are we away from that really being a c- compelling reality? And I know this is, um, you know, one of the things that Magic Leap has has struggled with. You know, the bringing the technology of their demo in, into something that was cost effective and lightweight and portable. And, and I think this is sort of the issue everyone has, even in virtual reality. Yes, uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm talking in very big terms about how technology this technology is great and it will change our lives. How do we get from here to there? Well, I mean, Magic Leap's approach was to swing for the fences. They made the uh, most high-end portable device they could, and the price point reflected it, and no one 
I think, really quite knows what to do with it. You know, if I'm putting money down, I think very reasonably we're going to get there incrementally through uh, the way Apple is adding more and more AR and mixed reality features to its its current mobile devices, right? We're gonna we're gonna go there step by step. We're not going to leap, as it were. I think right. uh, over the fence. Uh, and you know, you can you can already see people are sneaking augmented reality features in everywhere you look. And I think and uh, you know, and mobile devices themselves are getting better and better at parsing the real world. Well, this this in a sense is Apple's strategy. I mean, I think the next iPhone they're bringing out has got a um, a depth sensor, um, almost like a like a like a lidar built into it, which yes. it will start to allow them to build up not just the content base of of, of objects, but give people an early experience of, of why depth and room scanning is important. Yes, and I think it's very smart without asking them to to throw away their phones and pick up a wacky new device. Uh, yes, I think they're being very, very smart about it. And of course, Apple never has to be first. It just ends up having, it just ends up, it just has to be best and <laughs> ends up winning, winning out that way. A lot of content and media has an interrelationship with brands um, because companies are also trying to intermix their stories uh, alongside the things that uh, consume our attention. Was this something that you were also looking at, which is how does brand storytelling um, come to life in XR? I guess beyond the beyond the obvious, you know, uh, kind of advertising-driven approach of like click here and buy now for a discount. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, if I look at most VR and XR, uh, small VR and XR studios, they survive on advertising money, first of all. Yeah. Their, their cash cows are small branded experiences. You know, you go in and you go have the, the Avengers VR experience. You pay twenty dollars and you come out again. Uh, and these kind of short form, not even quite narrative experiences, are what people know how to make and what people can get money for making. My feeling, as I look at it, uh, when I look at some of the sort of prototype e-commerce apps on Magic Leap, like they work how you'd expect them to work. You want to buy a piece of furniture? Well, now the piece of furniture is there in three dimensions. It's, it's in your apartment. You can look at it. You can swap it out, change its color. You can click on it and uh, order it. Uh, and I, I feel like brands are going to be doing a lot more of what they're doing with things like pop-up shops, right? A website is going to start to be a pop-up shop, right? Right. just shows up in your living room. And I think the, the skill set of building experiences rather than just um, putting up a bunch of photographs with links on them, is going to be the, the next important skill set. And uh, I think that's... Uh, how, did, how did you guys, uh, I guess, architect experiences? Like, like, how did you talk and plan and design them? Was, was there a kind of a methodology around it? You know what? I think we were still in the middle of figuring that out. Right. If, um, uh, because basically had a relatively small budget for content. We didn't do all the experimentation we wanted to. So I think everybody is still figuring that out. And it's tricky because we're, it's a bunch of people coming together. Some of whom are UX designers, some of them are theater directors, some of them are film people, some of them are audio technicians. We're all figuring out, and we all have different processes and different right. languages, and we all know in our bones that we are correct. So I think that's a, that's a work in progress is the real answer. And I've just seen a bunch of slapdash things. We do physical mock-ups and we walk through them. Huh. Uh, we do virtual mock-ups on game engines and we walk through those. We 
talk and talk and talk. Uh, but I don't think that's a good process. It took a, quite a while, I think, to really shake down the process of making three, 3D interactive games. I think we were crappy at it in the 90s and we got very good at it. I think that, I think that's... I think we're all going up that learning curve. It's a it's a complex one because I mean even in the example that you mentioned, like a, a pop up retail concept, you you can't use design thinking really <laughs> to create that experience. It's not like it's not like creating a, a kind of a bottle opener or or a bank branch experience. It's uh, there are so many different paths of interaction, and, and you don't know everyone's context. So it's a uh, it's a really fascinating problem a design problem really even something as simple as that it is really fascinating and you have to build something that exactly as you said it's it's adaptive to context or at least finds a graceful way of ignoring them people are people are different heights right. people have different right. mobility uh mobility capabilities uh and you're building something for them to walk into or uh roll into or if, if they can't get off the couch it has to come to them I like it. Like it's a bunch of really interesting, very human problems. In some ways, um, I guess the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality is that in VR, you you want to actually forget the outside world is there. But in AR or mixed reality, sometimes when people forget that they're actually in an experience is when you get the biggest impact. Um, you know, I think of that designer, um, John Pawson, and, and someone said to him, I, I can't see what you did. And he said, thank you. <laughs> because, you know, for him, that was the, you know, that was, that, that was his design succeeding when, when you actually didn't realize the intervention. Uh, yes. I mean, I love virtual reality. I think it's a slightly simpler set of problems, although still hard problems. Like the state of, I don't want to go back to Coleridge, but let's just say suspension of this, that intermediate sense of believing or investing in, in something in the theater when you can tell that it's a paper set and yet you still care. That's a weird kind of alchemy that people have to find for mixed reality. And for a long, long, long time, what people got used to was, was creating a reality from whole cloth, either on the screen or in virtual reality. We have to relearn, I think, how to make people invest in stories and situations that uh, aren't, made out of whole cloth totalized delusions. I think that's going to be very interesting to watch people learn and fun because it's an, it's an old art, right? Yeah. That photo, that photo real counterfeit of, of the reality is, is not barely a hundred years old. And, and to your point, when you're not just an observer, but a participant or, or even an actor in the experience, um, it changes things. I, I mean, Fortnite has become such a, a revolution, but the, the fascinating thing about Fortnite is that the story is in the the story is told through the external environment, not not through the some sort of plot line or cutscenes. That actually, people trying to figure out what the story is is the story. Yes, which is really to me the my favorite and most most elegant way to do story in an interactive environment because you're you're giving all the agency to players. Uh, who want nothing more than to dig into the world and, and see what's in it. Fortnite is just one of the most interesting virtual spaces happening right now, the way they're adapting it into community spaces and performance spaces. Agencies is a fascinating concept, I think, in all of this. Um, how important is it that people feel like the experience is not on rails? Um, because that, that was always a bit of a, the issue with a lot of these 
you know, even 3D games was that you kind of felt you were on an elaborate roller coaster ride of push a couple of buttons like a monkey and then you see a cutscene. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And that is that is the core problem that people have been banging on with narrative video games for 30 years and have gotten a slight bit better at it. But you can feel in your bones that when you're in an inter- interactive environment, you don't want to be told what to do. You want that experience to come from you. Like, I love films. I love that passive experience. But when my hands are on the controls, it, it, it has to be about me. And then, wait, no, are you even telling a story or are you not telling a story? I mean, I write novels. I tell the story when I'm designing games or interactive stories. I'm more, much more creating situations. It's exactly what you described with, with Fortnite. Uh, I think, um, I think auteurs have to learn how to give up a little bit of control and turn, turn what they're doing into a little, into a collaboration with the, with the player. And of course, uh, to loop back to mixed reality, that's essential because as we were saying, you can't just build the thing you want to have happen. It has to adapt itself to the the space it's happening in. And honestly, there's just something natively interactive about mixed reality. You want to reach out your hand and touch it. Mm. And you need it to respond. Otherwise, the whole experience just goes dead on you. Um, And it is hard. It is hard to make experiences that adapt and uh, respond to that need. But it's also the power of the medium. And I I happen to like a hard problem, so I'm very happy about that. So where, where, just finally, where do we go from here? Like, what's the wider future going to be, do you believe, for XR in the next few years? Uh, well, as we've said, I think we're going to see incremental moving into XR-type media. But I don't think we're going to succeed by telling people to wholesale swap over to new advice, a new device. I think we're going to see successive devices that do it, do it a bit more, that are less screen-dependent, that are more oriented to the real world you're moving through. And ultimately, I think there's a grand plan out there where as we rebuild the communications infrastructure in the the sort of five with 5G, as we build what we're calling smart cities, smart homes, smart cars, mixed reality becomes the interface for that. Because now we're talking about a whole world of technologies that are sensitive to context and sensitive to how you live. I mean, I could, I could go on and on, but Magic Leap's grand vision was what they called the magic verse, which is all of this, where you're living in a world where you see the entire informational life of, uh, of your home and of your community and of the city around you. And it, it has an enormous dystopian possibility and an enormous utopian possibility. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.